Welcome to the Westside Barbell Podcast. Today's topic is periodization. We're joined here today from the crew from Strong 8, Travis and John, and of course, Louis Simmons. Louis, I'd like to start off by asking you, where did Westside, or where did you come up with the periodization has today? Uh, the periodization, I started using it in the very beginning in 1982 after suffering my second lower back fracture. Uh, the periodization comes from Perlipin's chart. A lot of people are... Uh, know who it, uh, that is, but um, actually he was a junior coach for the Soviet Union from 75 to 80 and a senior coach in weightlifting from 80 to 85. He had some of the strongest guys in the world. He tested over a thousand people and determined the amount of lifts uh, in one set and during in one workout and how many lifts. He calculated the percentage of 70, 80, 90 and so forth. And that's what I followed to a T because, uh, you know, they had the greatest weightlifters in the world. And there's no sense me working on my data. I didn't have the data they did. So I just followed his data. The second data, if you look at the managing the training of the weightlifter on page 32, there's a graph in there of the ratio of weights uh, lifted by 780 of the greatest weightlifters they had. And if you look at the chart carefully, um, training between 75 and 85% constituted at least 50% of their training. That's why my, my speed strength training is dedicated to 75, 80, and 85%. It was real barbell weight or a combination of bands and chains and barbell weight. Okay. Um, I know we get into it later on, but can we start off why linear periodization is out of date? Yeah, linear periodization, uh, basically over here it's called Western periodization. It's a total waste of time. You, you start out, um, a lot of top people to this day still do it, but it's a waste of time because you start out with high reputation for high purpose phase. And then uh, high reps, you know, 10, 12 reps, almost like bodybuilding, build some muscle in yourself because they come off of a, you know, a, a period of time that they don't train at all, which is ridiculous. No one can take time off. No athlete can have a vacation. Uh, then they'll drop the repetitions and maybe this, this six, you know, the five, six reps range and they'll start to build some power. And then it, as, a, as the training goes on, they go down to, you know, threes, twos and ones. And where the weights are growing heavy and the, the intensity grows as the volume lowers itself. Problem is you have no base. If a fighter did this, he would never be get through a 12-round fight. He'd only be able to fight four or five rounds. And that's what happens. It makes training very suspect. Uh, I did it for years. I did it for 12 years. I would go to a contest and barely make my openers. The next contest, I'd have 50 pounds left in me. I don't even know how. And there was no gear. You know, no shirts for 14 years when I trained. From 70 to 84. And then uh, no, no suits of any kind for seven years. So uh, the thing is, just, it's what it is is a detraining system. Because when you quit training hyperpathy, John, you're bodybuilder. If you quit training bodybuilding, you know, for two or three weeks, you start to lose your muscle mass. Mm -hmm. If you don't work on power or even flexibility or dexterity or hand and eye coordination, you lose some of that in, you know. And then strength, of course, you lose. But when you get up, you've got these large numbers, but you got no volume. I've seen it in my own gym to this day. Guys will try to do it. They will constantly, Travis is one of our lifters. You've, Travis, you've seen it. They will max out on the squat three or four times straight, go to contest, get a minimal PR in the squat, but they're dead all 16. That's why it doesn't work. And also what happens is it normally leaves little time for assistant exercises. And our ratio of spatial exercise is a barbell 20%, spatial exercise 80%. Uh, I was a good friend to Dr. Mel Seff and we did seminars together with super training. And Mel was extremely intelligent. And Mel was always upset because he wanted to do a study on knees. They wouldn't let him do the squat. He's very upset. 
and he had to do it on single joint motion. And I thought, yeah, that's that's a bunch of crap, you know. But then as I went on and I started developing machines and I started looking at the problems that weightlifters and powerlifters and sports people in general have, they have a muscle imbalance in one joint. It could be the hamstring, you know, they run the knee, the hamstring, the hip, low back, shoulder, tricep. So then, so then I realized I started to have to overload and precisely work on single joint activity, extensions, arm extension, back extension, thigh extension, you know, every, everything. So we started working on basically single joint motions, and that's when the gym really picked up and a lot of injuries went way down. Then uh, can you expand on a little bit about the, the Soviets and the Bulgarians' types of linear period, or sorry, types of periodization? Yeah, there's a big difference. If you look like, if you read the Soviet literature, there's much like us and the Chinese. They would break about 600 max effort lifts a year. And that's about where we are, if you count everything we do, you know, from small reverse hybrids up to rack deadlift. Bulgarians broke 4,000 a year. Now, ours is based off an of all-time record, and the Bulgarians is based off a of daily record. So if, it, you know, if they came in today, if he had a 440 clean, but they only did 424, that's what it was based off. And they would do six uh, six workout, six lifts, workout, do six heavy lifts, singles. Then they would take a 20-minute break and do six more. Then they come back in the afternoon and do six more, so it's a total of 18 a day. And that's where they come up with 4,000 lifts. And, you know, a lot of people, they don't understand our system. If you look at our system, Tom, you lift, and these, everybody lives here. Tom, you go down there and you squat takes you 20 minutes you work up you do your sets right you do your 25 squats then you then you run a monolith so you take 20 minutes run a monolith then you go do your pulls very similar to what the Paul Gaines did when you think about it. Mm -hmm. you know it just gives you enough rest in between there's no warm-ups I would always do my speed pulls at 345 and and um you know 220 pound a band and I would that's what I started with after doing my my squats and I pulled 715 off that I could also do my deadlifts first and then do my squat workout with no problem because my GPP was high, my level of physical preparedness was high. A lot of big guys couldn't could not keep up with me because I, I like to train. I did a lot of heavy training for for years. So you wouldn't start with just a plate or just a bar. You'd put your weight on and go straight to work. Total waste. And see, the theory of the Bulgarians was they did the same thing. They could start with very few warm ups in the second second set of six singles, so they didn't have to spend their time of you know 60k and 90k and work their way up. They immediately went up to the top weight and got it over with. And uh, if you knew that you're going to run the monolift after your squats are done, would you try to do deadlifts in between your squats, or would you just try just do squats, then wait for deadlifts? Well, actually, I did that okay. because I like to go fast. So after I got squatting, squatting, I would run over and do my deadlifts, all right, because the time they got three or four plates, and I'd be over and helping them, but I'd be done doing my deadlifts. But the rack poles were similar. You know, we would do a lot of rack pulls. I'd do speed pulls in the rack the same way. You don't have to always do them on the floor. Um, you know, we're talking about the Bulgarian, the Bulgarian system. Um, they were they did more exercises than the, if you read about Nam Sulam on the Pocket Hercules and look at the list of exercises they did. Sometimes they would do like 25 spatial pulls and no Olympic lifts at all. The next day, 25 Olympic lifts. Then it's back and forth. So that you know, a lot of people think all they did was clean, jerk, and snatch. This is a mistake. They had huge squats. Christoph had a 749 front squat and an 854 back squat, and he snatched 473. All right, so th this you have to have big squats in that sport, Olympic lifting. Well, we, our sport is based off the of squat as far as I'm concerned. You start out good in the squat, the meat goes good. Start out bad in the squat, you don't have a chance to break your total record. And uh, the, basically the difference, because it's a combination of Bulgarian training, which, by the way, came from Russian scientists, 
it was developed by the Soviet Union scientists. It was adapted by the Bulgarians, who what they did, they took the age limits on down and down till 10, 11 years old, had children max out every day until they became adults and they developed the greatest weightlifters in the world. You have to pay a close attention to your, your junior lifters. The, the Russians never thought about their juniors would beat their juniors, so well, who cares, because we got the top seniors. But then when their juniors became seniors, they were beating the Soviet Union seniors. So they realized they had to you know, follow through with what the Bulgarians did, spend a lot of time with youth training. I bring up a, 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 a large base of lifters uh, where they would excel at maxing out at a young age. It's not gonna hurt them. It's proven fact it has no, no uh, ill effect on growth plates or anything. So uh, the, I just want to continue for one second. The, now the parallels, because uh, they maxed out every day. Remember, mm -hmm. um, you know they max. What we do, we max out twice a week, but we break an all-time record. And each week we switch exercises. It can be a rack pull, and then a low box squat, and then maybe a front squat. It's all kind of stuff. And but we break a record in, at a rate of ninety-five percent, roughly, all the time, the entire gym. So we're constantly breaking records. Nobody in this country, I mean, the guys that do linear periodization, they don't handle a heavy weight for eight or 10 weeks. And I don't, so the, you know, the consequences of that is being very lucky to hit a record on meat day where we can roll right out to a meet tomorrow and break a record. We do it all. We could come in in the morning. Travis, you were going to do like rack pulls the other day. And no, it, by the time direct, you had breakfast, a five minute drive, you did a squat and you broke your record. Living proof it works. But the ball, we just used a lot more exercise than the Bulgarians, uh, than the Bulgarians did, just like the Russians and the Chinese. Is it true that the Soviets, before they did anything, they were um, cameramen, scientists, and all that went? Yes, the they... first Olympics. So they went to their first Olympics, they took scientists, cameramen, and coaches. They didn't take any athletes. And so what they did, they, they viewed the top athletes in the world, and then they tried to make model athletes of those athletes. And that's exactly what I do. If a guy walks in my gym, he's six foot tall, and he weighs 165, and he wants to live, I say, sorry, sorry, I just can't take you. You know, I have to pee model, model athletes. Our 165 West is, what, maybe five, three and a half? If you're lucky. Yeah. Well, what are you, five, five or six? Five, five, that's what, you know. You got to be built a certain way if you want to excel at a certain sport. You know, we're talking about this, a lot of people. You know, talk about, you know, athletic athletic people have low muscle bellies. Strong people have short muscle bellies. And that's why if you look at uh, if you look at the NFL or the NBA, it matters how long your legs are and how long your your arms are. It's basically that's all that matters. If you if you're built to be athletic, you're probably gonna be athletic. And then but if you got short arms and short limbs, you're not going to be on a football field or base you're just not gonna be there. Not even fighting, you know, you gotta have a reach. Is there um, a difference? So we got a lot of questions from people who are starting in the strength training and they go, well, our system won't work. Uh, for you, have you any thoughts on a beginner versus uh, a professional athlete in their um, type of periodization or their training? How would you start? Yeah. Well, if I was going to walk across America and want to start out in the right direction, I wouldn't want to start out and go head towards New York for 300 miles, turn around and go to L.A., if you're going to train, you might as well start out the right way. I've started 14 years old uh, boys out. Kenny Patterson, world uh, record holder, open at 20. Joe McCoy, uh, WBC champion at 19. 
And so you start them out, start them out young, and you start them on the conjugate system. As you well know, if you read Super Training, it talks about the conjugate system and how it's more, more advanced. But what they really mean is more advanced people need, need more stimulus. But why wouldn't I start a youngster out with a lot of stimulus? Um, I think, you know, a ball player, you guys work a ball player, they just can't hit a ball, they just can't catch a ball, they just can't steal a second, they got to do it all. So we work on all, all aspects of strength training, all spatial strengths, uh, while we're raising the work capacity at the same time, and making them mentally alert and tough. You know, if, if you, when I brought Kenny in, he's in there with Chuck Vogelpohl and these guys, and right away he sees these real strong guys, so what's a big weight, what's a 500 bench to Kenny? Nothing. I mean, he's 625 a raw bench close grip. I had six guys and it's, it's, could do it at the same time. You know, iron sharpens iron. So you might as well start them out like that, and um, that's how they succeed. So you just want to start out on using the conjugate system because if you use enough exercises, you're going to find the ones that work. And you're going to find the ones that don't work, and you eliminate those. You use the ones that work, and the sky's the limit. And uh, you were say, you two were saying the very same thing, that all my p p people that I trained then that would listen, um, they became uh, expert coaches themselves. They knew what they needed, and they knew what someone else needed. And that's important, I think. You just can't be blind. You know, you have to know what's going on on your own. So what is the conjugate system? What is the conjugate system? The conjugate system is no such thing as conjugate raw or conjugate this or conjugate that. The conjugate system is a mixture of doing all spatial strengths. You have to have strength, speed, uh, uh, speed, strength, strength, endurance. You have to have endurance and fast movements like a boxer does. You know, you had to be able to run maybe 26 miles like a long-distance guy at a certain pace, be able to maintain a pace without ex excess fatigue. Um, you have to rotate exercises. You have to, the reason, this is very important what we do, and people overlook this fact, they don't understand it. You One day you have to have high volume, and, and so that way the, 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 the intensity for us is 75 to 85%. The average is 80, same thing Chinese do. I said thing the Russians did. Then on the other day, the bar is with the barbell. The other day is going to be very low volume. We're going to max single as fast as we can, break a record for this, your brain. And, but the volume's low, but the uh, all-time record, then you move in your uh, special exercises. Tom, I know when you came here, I told you, you know, you'll be confused in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. He said, what are they doing? Because after they would maybe rack pull, they'd all go different directions. Because one guy needs more lower back, your guy needs upper back, somebody needs hamstrings. You know, so you you got to go train the muscles that you need. You know, again, individual muscle groups. Um, so it's a mixture of everything that you do. Uh, to me, especially, it's and you have to raise GPP. If you're not able <clears throat> to successfully train and recover for the next workout, it, it's a failure. Even when you talk about the conjugate system, um, and you look at restoration, you know, a, a, a ART guy, a chiropractor, massage. Um, the flotation tanks, the cryo, um, you know, PRP. You you just can't do something the same all the time. You have to have a mixture of it, uh, or it will become stale as well. And that's called the law of accommodation. So we constantly mix. It's you just got to learn when to get it and come back to it. I, I look at the conjugate system as all sports. A boxer just can't throw one punch. You got to throw a punch of combination. MMA guy's conjugate. He's got to have a ground game, a stand up game. And he's got to have tactics. You know, conjugate is also tactics. You ever heard anyone talk about tactics? No one. You have to have tactics. You have to have a plan. Without a plan, you plan to fail. So my guys, now powerlifting, there's not that many great powerlifters. There's great ones, but not that many. So my guys go, there's there's no tactics. They just go through their lifts and they win. Or, you know, but if you ever head to head with someone, you have to use tactics. So you always want to think tactics. 
Is there any difference uh, for this system for different sports? No, it's all the same. We we train them all. I know time you work with the fighters, you you rotate their exercises. We rotate them. Right now, I'm training a world champion shot putter. I mean, he's making extreme progress. Uh, Olympic long jumper who would not break his any of his standard, uh, you know, general exercises until midsummer before an outdoor season. He's already broke them all. So it's just living proof, you know, it works for everybody. Long jumper, shot putters are long, far apart. Fighters are long. You know, you got to have a lot of uh, disciplines to be a fighter. You got to be explosive, have great endurance, you know, mental toughness. I, I think one thing, Tom, you, when you when you train people, you know, you, you, you got to be like having fun when they train. You guys train a lot of young kids, right? Yeah. So you, you give them a lot of exercises. Like, you know, you'll find out what, like, like uh, Travis don't want to do something. Well, hell, don't do it then. You know, do something similar. It works the same way, but not that exercise. Keep mental stimulus up. When your mental stimulus goes, you're gone. It all starts up here. Heaven and hell's right up here. The, um, so what, what's a week? What's an average week? It was like Barbara for training wise. Okay, I'd like to start out on Friday. Friday's our speed squat day. So we'll go in and we train a three week pendulum wave. We will go up for three weeks. Normally, we use, for the most part, we use bands, I mean, with weight. So it's 50% bar weight, 55, 60 in a three week wave. We actually have adapted to doing 25 squats, five sets of five. Our squats have just gone straight up. My heavyweight, a beginner, 21, has gone from 940 to 1025. Basically a year. I think it was an anniversary meet. He just did. Uh, Travis has gone from seven fifty in six months to eight fifty. All right. So um, so that's and then after we do the twenty five squats, we do twenty pulls. All right. Now speed pulls, you know, uh, or if you're Olympic lifter, you could do power clean, high pulls, whatever. But you'll notice. So now if you calculate this in a monthly plan, in the weekly plan, twenty five squats, twenty pulls, forty five lifts for speed strength. But that's sports, right? All right, and a monthly plan is 100 squats and 80 pulls. So it's 180 lifts a month dedicated to speed strength. Now, and then it's assist accessory exercises, all types of spatial exercises for the low back, hamstrings, traps, abs, obliques. The obliques is very important. The obliques constitute greater abdominal pressure than the rectus abdominals. So people neglect their obliques. So you want to trade obliques a lot. But anyhow, you know, so then... Um, that goes on to, um, and it's an 80-20 ratio, 20% barbell, 80% spatial exercise. Reverse hypers is a four-to-one ratio. So, like, um, you know, if you do um, 5,000 pounds of squats, you got to do 20,000 pounds of reverse hypers. It just, why? Because it's all right around the, the lumbar region, the spine erectors, the glutes, the hands. That's the main movers for squatting and deadlifting, running and jumping. So that's how we do it. Saturday morning is speed bench. We go in and normally, the normal procedure is nine sets to three, three different grips. Um, there they'll use 50% with the band tension, where the band tension is about 30, so it's a, it's a top weight of 80%. All right, because again, that's right in the middle where speed strength develops. That's where the majority is, you know, between 75 and 85 is 80. So that's where they'll do that. Sometimes they'll rotate up 5% like Travis has. And Travis did a, has done a wave. Uh, I'll bring up a point. And uh, well, also I want to, before I go in, there's also alternatives. When we bring people in, like some of the girls, you know, will come in, or some of the guys that need muscle mass. Um, so they will do, instead of doing the triples, I had Greg Panora, who set several world records doing this. Um, he would do six sets of six. All right, let's say, you know, you could, John, you can do 315, six sets of six. Next week, 325 for six, six sets of six. 335 for six, and then 345 is getting pretty tough. Stop doing them. Start back with eights. 
maybe drop down to 300 for eight, eight sets of eight. Then you work your way up, you might get to 330, 35. It gets tough, stop, go back to tens. All right, now you're doing 10 sets of 10. Again, maybe you get back down to 300. So you go from um, 36 reps to 64 to 100 reps. So if you're using 315 for 100 reps, that's 31,500 pounds of work. That's a, that's a hyperpathy phase. Then you drop back, go back to the sixes. It took my roll bench years ago. Bill Cena told me to do this. The guy was a phenomenally strong guy. Told me to do this. Took my roll bench at 172 from 340 to 175 to 450 touch and go. And I did 500 at 197 by doing this program. And I never heard of speed work back then, see? So a lot of it was done on pins. We down, relaxed, all pins. So I did a lot of stuff like that. So um, and then again, uh, the ratio, believe it or not, is 80% of spatial exercise. Like Travis right here, I got as an experiment, what works? How do you know if you only if you do 10 things? I can always say don't take a bunch of medicines at the same time, like I do. <laughs> All right. But Travis, I got Travis. Travis, you did um decline dumbbells only with a rollback and like a, an a, almost a JM extension type, and your bench jumped how much? 40 pounds. 40 pounds. And your shirt bench went up 60 pounds. Yeah. All right. One thing. So we know what worked. Dump, decline dumbbell. You see, so that's just that's just the way. And then Monday's max effort, squat, uh, squat or deads. And on that day, also good morning. We like to work out max effort, good mornings, normally five rep max. So. And then we'll pyramid all the way up. Travis is down, there's 30,000 pounds of work. He worked up to 455, went back down, added reps. And it comes up to about 30,000 pounds of good mornings. That's a workout. You know? A workout is a workout. It ain't screwing around. You can't go and do three. You know, well, Louie, you, you do three sets of eight or what? Well, hell no, we don't do three. That's for girls. You know, it's little girls. My girls do so much. They, they can't keep up with the girls. So we do high, you know, a, a workout is a big difference between training and working out. A big difference. You know, so that's high volume again for space exercises. And then on Monday, again, remember, it's low volume for the backs every day for squat or dead. But the high volume comes into space exercise. And then Wednesday's max effort for the bench where to go in and max out. And our shot putter now is out benching all my benchers. And one thing he does, he does he does four sets of dumbbells every time, four times a week. You guys did this too, right? He comes in incline, next time decline, next time seated, next time flat. He rotates that way. I got this training from the East German shot putters. Actually, if you look at the, if you look at their training, they would do uh, eighteen benches. They do six. It's optimal, you know, in the seventies percent and all eighteen lifts. Where we do maximal because we're powerlifters, we're not shot putters. But I have him do this. This guy's he's out he's out benching everybody in my gym, <laughs> and the squad is going from seven seventy what five weeks to, to nine fifteen. All time record seven ten. He just did nine fifteen easy. Those dumbbell workouts, what do they consist of? Uh, four sets of dumbbells of moderate weight, like he uses, I think, 100s for four sets of 15. So, see, he does 60 reps, so that's 6,000 pounds of work that, you know, you would never do. And you, you got to consider, I, I try to tell people on your bench days, come in to two sets of hypers. How in the hell can that hurt? How could two, four sets of dumbbells hurt on squat day? You know, to warm up, all you got to do is warm up your body, right? So you do four sets of dumbbells, you're warmed up, you jump in your squat. But why does everyone think you can only train your upper body on upper body day and lower body on lower body day? That's a huge mistake. You have to jump in and, and add that extra work. If you, want to, you know, if you want to be smart, you got to read a lot, right? You can't read a little, you got to read a lot. You want to be smart, you got to read more. And it doesn't take from that workout. It adds to it, obviously, because yeah. now he's out benching everybody. 
my you know my guys years ago we did a lot of this stuff they lived on you Tommy you see the pictures yeah. you see the physical difference between the guys 20 years ago and the guys today don't you looks like a Huge. different gym well the, their joints are so much thicker right like, and um, is that because you did a lot more extensions a lot more extension with bars and T- tons of barbell extensions and all angles you have to train the incline the decline the flat the seated you can't just use one angle you don't bench in one angle you bench in all angles and it seems like volume is critically important to wave it in, wave it out, and or sorry, wave it up and wave it down. Well, exactly. That's what the pendulum weighs about. Like your 400-pound squatter, if you use just weights, you know, at 50%, um, you know, it's uh, use two, 220, 200, 220, 240. If you did, 10, you know, 12 doubles to 220, uh, that's 4,800 pounds. If you did at the end where I go 12, 12, 10, then the 10 doubles to 240, 60% is 4,800 pounds. It's flat-loaded. All right, but you add bands on that. See, they're using a hundred, a twenty-five percent bands. I've got calculations. These workouts are huge. Um, uh, I mean, if you look at an eight hundred pounds, uh, well, a thousand pounds squatter, they basically they're at the top what they're using, and we did it with barbell weight too. Uh, it would be um, seven hundred fifty for twenty-four lifts, then eight hundred for twenty-four lifts, and eight fifty for twenty lifts, and we've done it. We've done it. Man, Travis done it in the bench. He's done his squat by 198, uh, used 780 pounds for five sets of five. He has 198, walks around weighing 203 pounds. Silent Joe. He had, because I wanted to see an experiment, so I got the guys to squat, and I got him, in, and Travis did it in the bench. It didn't matter what bands you changed, because you got to realize when Perlman wrote those charts, they weren't using bands, they were using all weight. And the only ones I've found that cannot do this program are Olympic weightlifters. They do not have the work capacity to do even the optimal amount. They cannot do six triples in it. They can't do 36 lifts when we're doing 45, 45 lifts. And I do, I just, I know why, but they, their work capacity is very low. Back to Max Efford. Um, a big people, a big problem that people have deciphering is Max Efford is a one, is a three or is a five. That's a commonly asked it's question. Sing- it's singular. It's max single one rep. You know, what sport, you know, if you throw a shot, you throw it how many times? One. You swing a baseball bat one time at a time. Everything is one. So it's all singles. Yes, absolutely. So If you do twos and threes, what they call a max triple, you're building strength endurance. If I, I defy anyone at this table, if I got 500 bucks, I say, John, in your best trip, your best bench uh, is 500 for a double. So I got 500 bucks if you could do triplet. You go, okay, you're going to go 500, 500, 500. Instead of going like, if you had a 550 bench for a single, you're not going to use, you're going to go, you're not going to go 500, 500, wear yourself out. You will conserve yourself. And if you need to build strength and endurance, you'd obviously increase your max effort strength first and foremost. Has to. And then would you, would you do a drop set or something like that? Or would, how would you work on the endurance aspect? The endurance aspect, I've always had guys raise your single bench. That's where I did combine guys. It was a joke to do it. And uh, But you've raised your max single, the the reps go up. You know, even mm-hmm. even um, Guy here did 34 reps at Ohio State. He had about a 390 single bench. Mm-hmm. So I just raised the max single. And then and you got to learn, if you want to do reps, you want to fast eccentric phase. Don't, you know, just fast eccentric. Just and go. You go go two and a quarter, two and a quarter, two and a quarter. Don't do what I said, you know, about exerting maximal force. And you know, this training, a lot of people don't know either. The pendulum wave came from sports 
because if a ball team, a soccer team wants to squat 450 pounds, you train it, you know, with the, at the top, 75, 80, 85, they're going to have the force production to squat 400 pounds. If you want your lineman to squat 700 pounds, if you train it from 360 to 420, 50 to 60% with the 25% bands, they're developing enough force with the correct velocity, about 0.8 meters per second, to, to have a 700 pounds of force. That's what counts. So if you boy go squat 700 for one, but I, my boy does 25 exertions with 700, who's going to be more powerful on the football field? Exactly. That's why it's important. Uh, for compound movements, um, would you put any emphasis in those or is it always isolating the weakest muscle and targeting that to develop a weakness? you talking compound, like single joints? Yeah, I'm talking about if, if you wanted to raise the bench press, doing more bench press won't do it. No, we'll not do it. Absolutely not. Um, that's why, like Travis, exactly, I brought up a point in a minute. Just one, the dumbbell declines, put 40 pounds on your raw bench. You know, you know, so that's what most, that's what athletes want, no raw, you know, no gear at all. So it put 40 pounds on it. Same thing with, uh, we get extremely on the inverse curl. Tremendous. I had a little intern, Tom, you remember Courtney came mm -hmm. here, 140 pound high jumper, about a five, six high jumper. She could squat 250 and she could deadlift 260. She got on the inverse curl with 35 pounds. I said, your goal is to do a Russian leg curl, machine on the ground and do one. In seven weeks, she did two sets of eight in the Russian leg curl, and she squatted 330, and she led it to 320. So it just gives you an idea of what that one extra is, that in reverse hybrid. But that was the primary thing. My, so that's what we work on. Um, uh, same thing if you can't deadlift. I said years ago, I, you know, you can't ever say this, but I said a reverse hybrid can put 100 pounds on your deadlift, and I've seen it do it. But you, you know, I, I didn't say it's a guarantee, but it can, it can put a hundred pounds on your deadlift. And you guys have seen it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've all seen it. When you're going to the competition, how would you uh, periodize for that? Is there anything different you'd do? Absolutely. It, 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 now you have to bring two things together. It's just like fighters, good fighters fight combinations. You need a circa max phase, where that means near maximal. Near maximal phase, you read about circa max training. It, it basically consists of training the weights at 90 and 97%. When you're in the 90% range, the number, the bottom number is four lifts, the top number is 10 lifts, the optimum number is seven lifts. Now, if you pay attention to what we do, in a circumax phase, you normally do two doubles on the way up and three singles, seven lifts, all right? And it's an all-time record. We, now, is it, a, is it a kill done? What do I say? Break your record and get that hell out, right? Because it's called near max. It's not called max. We want to... We don't even want to max the contest. I want to come out of there and smoke some, so I got something left to next me, even though I don't get any better. All right, so you understand that, how we get up there, and it's based off the squat. Now, when do we do it? We do it 21 days out. I, it's called delayed transformation. You can read about it in practice science and strength training. I use a double delay. I use a one-week delay, uh, 28 days out, they train at 50%. It's basically on 28 to 14 days, how they base it. 28 days out, we train at 50%, take it fairly easy. 21 days out, it's all-time box squat record, right? Doesn't matter if you're geared or no gear, all-time record. Next week is 75% of that. Next week is 50% of that. Then you go to contest, you break all-time record. And again, if you squ your squat record is normally up, all of this are up. Now, A.J. Roberts, I'll give you an example. I've talked about this before. But A.J., on a strength phase, he used 700-pound of band, and he made 510 pounds of weight. That's 1,210, okay? And his training partner, Jake Anderson at the time, uh, the first week, they did three doubles of 410 and 700 pound of band. 
Well, then the next week, AJ made 510 with the bar weight plus 700. Jake made 460. What's that tell me? Because Jake was faster, I think he might have mm-hmm. saw. Jake was more explosive, but he wasn't maximally as strong as AJ. Because at the meet, Jake squad 1135, and AJ did 12 1205. But if you look, but the, on the circumax phase, AJ did 740 of weight and 440 bench 1180. So you take 1180 on circumax day, 1250 on strength strength speed day. He squad 1205. That's how accurate this program is. And I've got over 80 cases to prove it at 800 and above. From that uh, one, when you had uh, Jake and AJ do that, what was the biggest comparison between the two of them that you noticed from the both days? Uh, 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 Jake is more explosive. And it bears out, too, when Jake would train, Jake, we, they trained at a fairly fast pace, and I'd have to tell Jake, take an extra 45 seconds because he starts to slow down, and he'd be right back to blowing up his sets. You could really see Jake is very explosive, you know. So when you had someone who has got more absolute strength and one guy is more explosive, how would you alter their training or would you at all? Would you? Do There's you- not much you can do with body body types, mm-hmm. you know. Body bo- muscle fiber is muscle fiber, but if a guy's super explosive, they have to take longer rest. There's no way around it. You know, you're, you're a big fight fan. You see Wobbly and guys like this. One of my pet peeves is on the shows. You know, oh, he's got too much muscle mass, and that's why he wears out. It has nothing to do with it. Two fighters weigh in at 170. They're comparably the same body fat uh, ratio. But one of them ha- obviously has more fat switch fiber than the other, who normally has a mixture of both. That's why he's fairly fast, great endurance. You know, the other kid's all fast. Like, well, he's a perfect example. Um, you know, the uh, remember uh, uh, Carlin? beat the crap out of uh, all first round wins right there's a reason guys all got first round wins they can't get in the second round think about it it's it's muscle fiber not that he's more muscular some people look more muscular if they weigh in the same weight class in the same sport and you're the top of the UFC you're going to have about the same ratio of body fat well one question that we got in was that um, this gentleman is uh, very very explosive so when he when he does speed squats he uses green bands it does nothing for him so he, he uses a uh, more band tension yeah. and it seems to keep him slowing down regular, yeah he gets more carryover from that there was a shot put here in columbus and uh the coach coach we didn't seem to hit it off for a long time he never met me but we didn't hit it off too well and so he here in columbus two minutes away never brought him down here and he wanted to be the youngest ever to throw 70 feet so i think he moved away I get a phone call from him. He goes, I want I want my guy to throw 70 feet and you'll be the youngest ever. What do I do? I said, you got to slow him down. And he said, what do I mean? I said, just what you said, Tom. I, I had him do everything with bands because of slowing down. And I, anyhow, a, a punch is at the end of the punch or a shot or any type of uh, an implement is the end of the release. So I slowed it down to accommodating resistance. He immediately threw 70 feet. So you got to slow them down to develop force. If you, like I've always talked about the the you know the, the relationship between force and velocity. If I take a wiffle ball and throw it at a window twenty feet away and I hit it, it's not going to break it out. I give a shot put. I can't get the damn thing here because it's too heavy. It's too slow. Don't get there. Baseball, I'm not going to win a lot every time because it matches the, the the rate of velocity and force. These things have to match. Yeah, everybody. <sighs> You're right. See, there's guidelines we use, but some mm-hmm. people have to get off the guidelines a little bit. Like Chuck Vogelpool, what separated him from other lifts I've had? Extremely strong and extremely explosive. I watched him box squat 885 pounds with 620 pounds of band. 
I want you to do 835 one workout, and I'm going, I got, I'm not believing it. I've seen, I've had, I started this kid out 20 freaking years, and I'm going like, <coughs> there's no way. What, I did not see what I saw. Then he did 885 in another workout. <laughs> That's insane. That's 1,400-some pounds. Didn't you say he used to pull against uh, lots of bands that taught him how to? Yes, taught him how to strain yep. while, he, while he thinks. And, you know, uh, I don't know. You might get into box squats later. You're going to box yeah. squats later because I want to talk about that. The uh, yeah. I wanted to just to get in when I think about what uh, was it Rocco? Was that the guy you had who was super slow? Yes. Yeah. Then um, so he's on the complete other end of the spectrum of someone who's super fast. Right. And how did you help him? Uh, if I recall, see Rocco was slow, so we got him to do lighter weights and worked on more speed. And he, he went from basically, I think it was 750 to 850 pounds in a couple of meets. And he worked on Wall Street. So it's not like, you know, he's he's a Wall Streeter. Yeah. So like it's a big thing, but if you're a coach, it's your job to understand these things. You can't just use a template or a guideline because coaching's an art and you got to know your athlete. You have to understand the, the relationship between posture and force. And, you know, a lot of people go, um, you, uh, you guys have all heard it. Oh, why do you guys use bands? Well, I'll give you a good example. It, again, if you, I think maybe page 40 in, in Practice Science and Strength Training talks about the force velocity uh, curve. And it starts, it got high, high force, high force, high force. Get up to where the second pole starts. At the very top, force drops. Same thing when you bench at the end, your force drops. Because why? Because of bar deceleration. It doesn't stop if you hook bands to the bar. Now, you just saw a guy that had a best clean 250, right? And you took him down there, put bands on the bar, worked him up, took bands off, and he made 270. 275. 275. That's right. Was that that? And I said, I'm going, I'm, am, are we not putting ourselves on the spot? Because you can sandbag her, make us look like idiots. They break our records every time. It's a, it's a, it's a joke to do this. It's, all you got to do is do it. <laughs> um, uh, is that what? Did I yeah. answer the question? Yeah. And, uh, it's about, like you said, a coach has to understand. You, a lot of things. If you got a kid with ultra endurance, you're not going to put him. Don't make him sprint. If you got a sprinter, don't make him run a mile. There is no base. This is one of my pet peeves of track coaches. You know, and I got a track book coming out eventually if Tom ever gets that for me. But um, <laughs> I talked in there about a base because Tommy trains a fighter, and he's had what probably forty at least pro fights or more. Mm -hmm. Travis Clark. Yeah, he's a lot. Travis Clark going around both these buildings with all kind of wheelbarrows and weights, right? Yeah. No problem, correct? Has a fight. Gets a, gets a few cuts from headbutts. Now come in for three or four weeks. Goes out with half the crap. Can barely get around right one time. Mm -hmm. He's all mad. Where's his base? Why didn't that base stay there? Because you can't keep a base. If he was a if he was a 5K racer, maybe. But it's not good to do it for a sprinter. And why would anyone train a sprinter longer than when he starts to decelerate? Explain that one to me, guys. If you go to the drag strip, you run 1,320 feet, not 1,380 feet. Once the car don't go no faster, you got to add power. You know, after the drive phase, it's acceleration and it's top maintenance speed. The only difference between men and women, men can have a longer drive, they can accelerate longer than women, up to about 70 meters. Women can't do that. So if you train two sprinters, the women have to work on their top speed phase a little longer than males. But you want to work on acceleration. It does no good to work on deceleration. 
I but I see this all the time and it really ticks me off. <laughs> we notice with athletes, or not with athletes, when people say, well, I lost nothing. Well, you didn't have anything to lose. The, the top athletes, after seven days, they're, they're, they started to go backwards and backwards. And the top athletes go back a lot faster than average athletes. That's a big thing people forget. You might win a competition. You want to take time off. There's no such thing. You start taking time off. You start regressing. Well, you know, Tom, this is my, you know, my pet peeves. When I bring track girls in mm -hmm. here, I say, give me some time. I got to know what am I if I'm breaking their box jumpers and they're getting stronger and they're pulling sleds more but are they running any quicker if I don't have anything to go by how do I know what I'm doing is working and we got to, I had throwers years ago it still does a high state record for over 30 years in the shot 70 foot 10 and I trained a, a discus thrower quite a bit he threw about 212 214 and I so when they're here I go hey man how's your throws Matt Coach don't want me doing throws. I go, dude, you got to do, you got to have some timing. No throws, no throws. So then they take off and go out west, and I, you know, they call me up. Lou, what's up? I say, hey, man, how's your throws? Terrible. They're doing seven, eight, nine hundred throws. I go, terrible, yeah, because out there they didn't do any weight training. This is the most profound thing I've ever heard in sports. Why would you... Why would you train weights at all? Because here's what happens. I got a, I got a top on a long jumper and I got a top shot putter. And after they finish their weight training and start their season, they do their best. Season goes long, it goes down. Has someone just stopped to think for a moment? Maybe you should have kept some weight training up. This is the most bizarre thing I've ever heard. And we do it all year long, right? We do everything all year long. And they can too. Just do, just do general throwing and general jumping. Don't go throw the shot. Don't throw the discus. Don't do triple jumps. Do general exercises that lead into specific, then sports specific. But you got to have, how in the hell do you know what's going on if you're not testing them on a regular basis? We're constantly tested, right? Every freaking workout, we're tested. Math and data don't lie. No, no. And physics and math yeah. don't change over years. There's yeah. no new program. There's not Joe Smo's workout and gyms that don't even have addresses and stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? Uh, can we go back to Circumax? Can, can you possibly just give a quick overview of Circumax for powerlifting and then how you do Circumax for one of your track athletes? Let's say your jumper. Your jumper's got a big meet coming up. Can you just show the, the similarities between the two and how you lead up into them? It would be, it would, again, it would be sports specific because I told my shot putter when it comes for in very important events, I want him 21 days out to do a, a, an extreme workout with the throws. You know, try to break some kind of a throw record, then taper it down just like we do. It, um, you know, the delayed transformation came from track and field, Verfrashansky, a lot of work he did, and Medvedez in weightlifting. And the Bulgarians followed the same program. And and Tom, remember Flavio? Mm -hmm. He had a, a Charlie Charlie uh, Francis yeah. and a swim coach, and remember his name? Yeah, Italian swim coach. Okay, all right. And he put my wave up and their waves up, and what happened? They were all the same ones. Mm -hmm. Swimming, sprinting, powerlifting, because we're all human beings, most of us, you know. It's all, it, we all recover at the same rate. You know, a model athlete, I mean, if you're a real athlete, you know, you're prepared, you know, you're the very top. And I and my guys are, are all top lifters and top sprinters and top uh, shot putters are all the same. So when you have you know, 21 days out, and this is theoretically, but you have your shot putter, he does um, he, ultra high. Does he um, still do ultra high in the gym in the same week? Or is he just more focused towards sport specific? Actually, what I do that day, I would have him just throw the shot. But when he gets ready for the event, three days before or less, I would have him do a max effort lift. 
And, um, you know, and that's what you guys say you do. It's the very same thing. Consistently, absolutely. Yeah, so, like, the baseball guys, you know, they have these showcases where they'll test their throwing velocity, exit velocity off the bat. Like you said, same same thing three days before. A lot of times we'll have them hit a max isometric. I'll take them through, like, a five-pin position pull. Right. And, you know, that, you know, two, three seconds per pull at each position. You know, that 15 degrees north and south, give them the full range of motion. They stay activated for the next two to three days, and they, they invariably have the best showcase they've ever mm -hmm. had. The Soviets did a lot of extension work in eight positions. Mm -hmm. eight, you know, that's a lot. So, so yeah. But that's how I would do it. Uh, and, like, it could be this, as a throw from the front of the circle or whatever he wants to do. Mm -hmm. You know, like, you know, pick what you want because I want you to want to succeed at it. Right. I'm not going to tell you to do something. Oh, I hate that. I hate it. So, you know, you're going to suck at it. Well, you talked about uh, Charlie Francis, uh, Ben Johnson, right? Would right. take the, bench. the max bench press. That's right. You know, and he, he was a sprinter. He'd leave the legs alone, and other guys yeah, would leave absolutely. the upper body alone. He'd, he'd do his, his legs. He'd do near maximum, was a six or seven days out, and then he'd do a bench press three days out. And then the swimmers would flip that. They would do right. um, plyometrics three days out from competition. You know, I, I hate to say this. I'm not going to say what school. <laughs> But I had two girls here. I had them since 16 years old. And in high school, they ran, the one ran faster in high school than she did at a major college. And she's a senior. Now, the only thing I do is run my mouth and my nose runs. That's all I know. How did I, she have a greater performance in high school than she did four years at a major college? This is what, this is not what I want to know. This is something the coach has to ask himself. We see that quite a bit with our at, throwers. 55 inch box jump shrank to 42. A coach has to ask if you know what if Travis goes to me when I go to meet and I I'd mess up you go Lee what the hell what the what the hell did you do what's wrong what what happened this time but when Travis goes to meet and he messes up they go hey Louie what happened to Travis they don't ask Travis they ask me what happened to Travis I'm still right. the one you know so a coach is responsible one hundred percent they say it's still be safe if an athlete pulls a hamstring it's the coach's fault. Absolutely. Strength coaching. My guys are a little bullhead, as you well know. I mean, I can't, you know, they, they won't do everything I try to get them. I tell them over and over, like retarded dogs. <laughs> and then, then they repeat it. They repeat it. The, so when you were researching everything and coming up with the system it is today, uh, what were what are one or two essential books or books that you knew that you were on track that this was correct? Well, believe it or not, I had all a bunch of Conigan's weightlifting books. That's mm -hmm. what I went by. All right, I started this in the very beginning of '82 or the very end of '81. All right, in 1992, Practice of Strength Training, the first edition came out. So of course I bought that book, and I read that book, and I and I'm going like, this is what I'm doing. I got to be on course. You know, I'm on course because if you look at accommodation, I don't, I never did accommodation. I did everything to, you know, basically right on line with the book. You know, I, and I, I remember Tudor Bumpa, I got great respect for him. He's wrote many books on periodization. And I, I gave uh, York, Pence, York, Bar, uh, York University a uh, glued ham in a reverse hyper years ago. I talked to his assistant who had three PhDs. You know, you name it, the guy was a genius. I talked to him all the time. So he goes, well, Tudor wants to thank me. I said, well, sure, man, put him on the phone. Talk to the bumper. Get on there. Thanks, because, you know, Lou, you're, you're up, your periodization is all wrong. So I go, well, why do you say that? And he goes, because it's flat loading. Remember how I discussed, like, an 800 squatter's got to do so much work? We know that. A 400 squatter does one half the work that 800 squatter does. 
Every, for every 50 pounds you go up, you have to do 600 pounds of volume. This is math. You guys understand what I do. Absolutely. It's all math. So I explained to him what I did, uh, why they only handle so much barbell lifting, but the but the basis, if you haven't done any glued hams in three weeks, yeah. you suck. In three weeks, you got a large volume of glued ham yeah. or, or back raises or good mornings. And he goes, well, that makes all the sense in the world. And I know tutors told people that, you know, this is a, a very simplistic way to train. It's very, it's proven it's effective. Uh, if you look at the squat alone, I've got the three greatest coefficient squats of all time in this gym. How could that be? You know, 12, 12, 12, 35 at basically 280, 12, 10 at 271, and 11, 80 at 264. And they all do the same program. The biggest thing is about assessing that weakness, making it stronger. That's right. Now, I think that's the biggest thing people struggle with is where they're weak at. And some people are too proud to admit they're weak at there, and some people are just too stubborn to change. But once you assess that weakness and make it stronger, it's a pretty simple system once you can get your head around it. I think that's what goes on in my gym because I've got a lot of really good squatters, and right now they're not so good in a deadlift. So what they want to do, they want to max out in the squat all the time. Am I right, Travis? Yeah. They want to... A shy away from the deadlift. Am I right, Travis? You know, you got you you know, you gotta fight fire like you, you fight a good jabber. They say, Well, you, you beat a jabber with the jab. You gotta fight fire with fire, man. If you like the I've always said the lift that you're a bad at is a lift that will make you a champion. You guys train baseball players, like we were talking a minute ago, a moment ago. If you can't hit a fastball, you're not gonna play major league baseball. You have to learn to hit that fastball. If that's what's holding you back. You're not going to make any cash. Exactly. And the same, you know, if you can't hit an off-speed pitch. That, you know, a change-up. You got to do what you're bad at. You right. know? So, same thing. Mm-hmm. And like you said, I think MMA is probably the best analogy because, you know, if you're a world-class kickboxer and, you you know, you have no jiu-jitsu or wrestling, I mean, you better work on that or, you know. If I was to fight you and I would try to find your weakness, but if I would lift her, I would find my weakness. Right. You have to find yeah. a weakness, exactly what you said. Anyone else got any questions for Lou? Jonathan? No. Um, do you want to get into what you guys have been doing with the system, how it's worked for baseball, and what you've uh, results you've seen since you've been here the first time now? This is your second visit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so talk a little bit about uh, when we first came here, obviously it was, it was it's an awestruck. You walk in, you see, you see what's being done. Um, it was it was great for us because we knew right away that we were super on track with the system. I mean, we were, we were doing things that we hadn't even been able to discuss with you guys, and finding out that we were doing the same th- many of the same things you guys were doing. Um, but what we took from that um, is is really a, a drive to find a, a kind of an enhanced drive to find the weaknesses and the breakdown in the athlete. Um, we had big big records across our across our population for that first. Uh, six weeks after we left, um, I, I think our average records were being broken at 30 and 35 pounds over a six-week period. So then I started to look back deeper into the text that I had read, uh, listened to the whole the whole series of podcasts over and over again. Josh does the same thing. Um, we still got to talk, and I, I spoke with him about isometrics, and that they intrigued me very much for our population because in the baseball population, they're very worried about uh, fatigue, overuse, uh, you know, joint inflammation, etc. Uh, we talked on our last podcast quite a bit about the fact that isometrics don't cause inflammation. Uh, because no, there's no tissue glide. Um, so we said, you know what, we're just going to throw our hands up in the air and dive into isometrics. Um, and we've actually been running a study where we're six and a half, almost seven weeks into it right now. Uh, we pair isometrics on our speed day in between each set. We do two to three second uh, max effort isometrics, blasting the pins. 
um, either from a squat or a deadlift uh, or on upper, upper day uh, into bench presses. And what we do as strength coaches is we really, I really test my guys, uh, and, and Josh does a phenomenal job with this, in challenging them to find my kids' breakdown, right? So when we find that breakdown, we move those pins immediately, and we move those pins right to that breakdown, and they blast those isometrics into that breakdown. And what we find is, there's no sticking point anymore. They literally cruise through their sticking points. So we're doing this all the way, building up to the end of the, the end of our, our speed sets, and we, we follow the, the same the same system. Uh, you know, ten doubles on our pulls, uh, eight eight triples on our squats, uh, nine triples on our on our pushes, and you know we're, we're hoping to get into five to fives now. But um, what we see is uh, we take the bands off on that last set, and they, they go straight weight and do contrast, mm -hmm. and it's unbelievable. The bar speeds are absolutely. Incredible. So you use a lot of contrast training. Absolutely. You know, it's in all the books, right? Yes, but, sir. But you guys are one of the few people that I know that actually use it. Yeah. Since we've been doing that. Yeah, it's amazing. Like you said, science of practice of strength training. It's right there. It's right there. Right and there. it's, it's, it's you know, the first, the first chapter. It's amazing how many strength coaches, like, they don't necessarily know what isometrics are. Those, they confuse, like, like Tom and uh, we were talking last night at dinner, like a static hold or an isometric, they think, you know, going down and pausing. In like a, a pause squat. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's an isometric. isometric. No, it's not an isometric. No, no. So. people will be lazy. Right. So that's made, I mean, since we've been doing that study, I can tell you we've had, we've had professional athletes all the way down to kids that, uh, um, you know, are, are not necessarily genetically gifted and our records are absolutely through the roof. I mean, we're, we're getting 60, 70 pound uh, squat records, box squat records, parallel box squat, uh, sumo deadlift records. Um, crushing our, our specialized variation records. It's unbelievable. Um, and the thing is, what I was worried about is maybe that it was just a neural adaptation uh, or a, you know, a functional adaptation that was just momentary. Mm -hmm. But our specialized volumes, the kids are destroying all their specialized work. So their, their inverse curls are going up, their, their uh, reverse hypers are going up, their belt squat weights are going up, everything's going up and it's, and it's transferring. Um, so that, that's been that's been massive for us. It's important to do motion after isometrics. And that's you why know, we put it on the speed day. You know, Shabbat, when he was here, he was doing a lot of stuff. He'd have him do a lift and then isometrics and lift, and they would get better and better. Like testing, you know, single joint stuff. And there we got, every, every time you do isometrics, their single was up. And then, you know, we're getting, on doing them on our speed days, we're getting the 40 jumps, you know, uh, after. You know, how after important speed. are the jumps? Oh, crucial. extremely important. I mean. We consider that the first part of transferring yeah, sport. Right. That that's how an athlete transfers his maximal effort, right. maximal effort, and, and rate of force development in the weight room into his actual sport. Exactly. He's got to move his body against gravity now versus you know weight against gravity. It, it's a definition of explosive strength. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and one thing I might add too, and this is you know again this is something we learned from you guys. You know, we heard what you know John was doing with all the pails and rails and the and the and the end range isometrics and such, and we have a guy that you know kind of oversees like the assessment part of that for us and helps us like implement that into our population. That's really where I got the idea from the isometrics because I got to thinking, I'm like, okay, well, we have individual joint range where we assess them and figure out where their breakdown is, what they can't control. Well, why wouldn't we do that in the lifts? And why wouldn't that transfer over in the, in the sports specific movement? And it literally just lays right over. Well, John, put, my shoulder is pretty much froze, right? I don't know mm -hmm. how many degrees you think you've moved a butt of bumps, correct? Mm -hmm. Because if it was only moving half, I'm going to use and have my muscular capabilities. You have to have great range of motion. And that's why everybody plays a, a, a large part of sports development. It's just not lifting weights or it's, it's conjugate. It's everything. You know, it's, it's conjugate. conjugate. It's conjugate. Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah, one of the things is, too, is um, like if you look at it from a systems perspective and you don't just look at the external demands, you look at the intrinsic dynamics. So ex- ex- uh, I think a lot of people look at conjugate and they look at just the rotation of exercise and everything that's external, but they don't look at how can I increase the individual's movement capacity so that that individual is a better match for whatever demands that you're constantly rotating. So that's like what we were doing with your shoulder joint, right? So let's say that you have 50% shoulder joint mo- uh, range of motion that's active. You only have access to load and use that so there's a lot that goes on there from like a uh, from a neurological aspect from from how you come up with a motor solution for whatever task you use with said joint to also a loading aspect you're only loading half the tissues within that joint right so it's like think about it as soon as you start to acquire better joint now you can load all the tissues in around that joint you come up with better motor solutions from that joint so you don't have that neurological error so it's basically nicolene's uh Bernstein said it's repetition without repetition which would be the goal of baseball right to be able to do the same thing but do it in a different manner so have the same outcome every time but do it in a different way so you don't get the wear and tear and basically you're just better at that said task you, you probably notice I've gotten a lot larger since I've got greater range of motion. I'm seven years old. Right. Most people say that's impossible for a person my age to get larger, but it's not if you understand weight training and you got range of motion. Right. And it's the same thing. I mean, I'm in a manual therapy aspect, so I'm using manual inputs. You guys are in a, more of an external thing where you guys are using actual, res, you know, actual external demands, which I consider to be weightlifting. John, I want you to talk about a guy, if you would. I know when I interrupt them, what they're talking about. But we had a guy come in, 60 years old, ran 270 miles straight <laughs> and 70 hours straight, no stop. This guy's a mess. I checked him out. I told him what I thought was wrong, which is actually right. But John's an expert and knows how to fix it. Explain why this why this man is such a mess, John. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's going to be hard. to. So why don't you explain how he actually runs? And he runs like he this, runs. like Airborne Shuffle. Yeah, so he's and and so not that John will tell you what wasn't working. Yeah, so basically you go in and you assess them, so put them on the table, much like I think is the guy Moses, yes, right? Moses. Is that the guy you yeah. guys got? So like you put them on the table, and this is the thing that I found out, especially here, especially working with high end athletes, you can't make the assumption that an individual has high functioning joints. What I found out is it's just like the shot putter that we're talking about, okay? Is that shot putter has been, he is such an adaptable individual that he's been able to figure out how to throw a shot put without a hip joint. So when you ask him, hey, when you go to push off, where do you feel that? I feel that in my back. Well, you shouldn't be feeling your back, you should be feeling your hip, right? So that's the problem. I mean, we've had NFL guys, I mean, all these guys, we put them on the table. And when you actually assess, so a joint is an articulation of bones. and a functioning joint, one bone can move independently of another. So basically, when you're in assessment, you're assessing how much of this independent motion do they have, right? A lot of times when you put someone on the table and they can't show their compensation patterns, you see automatically right where you can start to instantly add capacity to that individual. So the individual may look at it as a bad thing. I look at it as a good thing because I go, wow, this individual has been able to accomplish all this without a high functioning joint. So when we add a joint into the mix, everything's going to be better. But basically, this guy had literally zero bone motion in his hip joints because he wasn't using his hip joints to run. He was basically using, I can't remember which level, which was literally totally worn, right? So basically like he was shuffling. So imagine like your two, your iliums or like the, not your actual like feet, like he was just rotating them like this. Using his spine. Yeah, in a very weird pattern, right? To be as efficient as possible to conserve energy, I guess. 
But in the meantime, because you're not using your hip joint, I mean, he had zero hamstring, zero glute. You have no muscles. So it's like the prime mover, obviously, is going to be the hip joint. But he doesn't have a hip joint. And he is, so his back was functioning as a hip joint, which it's not designed to do. So then he wore his disc out because it, literally this is what he – if this is his spine, you could see it. That's all he was doing. Yeah, Tommy, we, I put him in the belt squat – I mean the the the, the treadmill, the you know oh, the yeah. non motorized treadmill for yeah. Ben and because he could only go like two minutes. I go, how's this guy go? Seventy well, hours. Yeah, so it's like that's someone who we would think of as quote unquote high functioning. Wow, this yes. guy's a high functioning runner. Put him on the table. This dude doesn't even have a joint, mm-hmm. yeah. right? So it's like that's how good his body was at figuring out how to compensate. You know, it's not he's not doing it in an optimal manner, but he's completing the task. Yeah, right? But instead of in, instead of creating adaptation, which is positive, he's creating maladaptation because he's ruining his joints in the process. And you ran into the same thing with the hockey players. Hockey players, yeah. And I've got two guys that played hockey, and they both were a mess. Correct. Right. Yeah. Just because <laughs> you of just the worked main, on one. Yeah. So was <laughs> hip joints. So hip joints. Everything. Everything. That's yeah. why I, I try to explain to the guys: leave West City alone. He needs something besides going over there and maxing out every week. I ain't getting nowhere. Um, they, and getting crushed. I've never got Mr. Squat in my life at my gym. Yeah. To bring it back to you guys. The So you're having huge results in training, but we all know training in the gym is one thing. It doesn't matter unless it goes out into the field. So how good are your athletes performing on the field? Is it carryover and real good? We've got multiple high school athletes that have pro-level exit velos. Um, throwing velocities are going up four to seven miles an hour consistently. Uh, we actually, we've got kids that are break. Since we started the isometrics, I have to retest them because their their throwing velocity, you know, commands going up. Cause, you know, command of the baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, grip strength goes through the roof. We shake their hand all the time when they come in to te- kind of test that test mm-hmm. that CNS. It's just like a coach and kind of figure out where that kid's at for that day. Um, we've really been careful with monitoring, like you know. If their if their CNS is getting taxed and stuff, but they're crushing through it and and they're killing their showcases. Now the real test will be we got another six weeks to run this study. It's perfectly aligned with when baseball season really starts again, high school season. Mm-hmm. Um, but from the actual skill standpoint, um, you know, timing timing is improving. I mean, accuracy is improving. Hand eye coordination is improving. Um, so so biomechanics are improving. Absolutely. Yes. And and that's the thing with 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 what John was just talking about with. With it, it doesn't matter with the athlete, if it's a geriatric patient or a top level athlete. I mean, you think about it, individual joint function and, and assessing individual, you know, breakdown or, or the ability to move a joint in, in, in a certain position. And that's the conjugate system right there, because that's exactly what we do. Right. I mean, and, and, and yeah, and that's the thing, too, is, I mean, you guys are doing it from a true systems perspective. So it's not just the external demands. You're, you're, you're rotating the external demands, but at the same time, that person is coming with increased movement capacity to accomplish those lifts. So everything is, it's both sides are getting, are getting brought up at the same time instead of just one. Because eventually you're going to reach accommodation. If you're just worried about external demands and increasing external demands without on the back end, knowing that person's capacity and where they don't have capacity so that you can specifically start to increase capacity so that they're a better match for the demands. Our, our, um, one thing about when you do isometric training, it's also a great coaching aid because a coach can see while there's no motion, if he's in proper position throughout the whole range of motion when you break it up like you do. Right. We use that a lot in that way because, I mean, you're getting, you know, instead of having to slow it down in like a slow motion video, you can get there and coach him in that position. And you can also put them in proper position. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
he's got a pro pitcher. I mean, it's to kind of talk about that too. Like he just he just pulled he just had a pretty big record and pulled six oh five off four inches of block. And what we found is I, I I went online and I found pictures of where this dude actually contacts the ground and, and releases the ball. His name is Jacob Barnes. He plays for the, for the Brewers. He's a he's a he's a closer and he throws hundred mile an hour whenever he wants pretty much. And uh, this dude can pull four hundred or six hundred five pounds off of four inches of block in a sumo pull. If we take him down four inches, it's four eighty nine. Right, forty nine. So we got a hundred, hundred twenty pound deficit within a four with a four inch range mm-hmm. of motion, and this guy's striking the ground off basically in a sumo stance. You know, a little bit of rotation, obviously, in the torso, uh, at, off a of floor level. So what we're trying to figure out now is, okay, can we can we incrementally lower these isometric demands, right, or or the the level of the isometric position, and basically take that six hundred pounds of force and put that down off the floor now? Because if we can do that, now he's got. 25% more force production when he strikes the ground and actually goes to release that ball. I got two points by 123 female lifter, had a 370 deadlift stuck forever. Got her to do isometrics and did some good mornings, but the isometrics uh, and two mates, she did 405. And uh, I, we were talking about today, my, my dead, my, one of my 900 pound deadlifts is six foot seven, pulled 900, this guy pulled 900 all day long. We raised the weights four inches off the ground, exactly what you did, and he barely could pull 810. Because we took his leg drive away. Exactly. So we were discussing this. Exactly. What's the problem? Yeah. Yep. And so, see, even though they have two different problems, the same thing can right. can be the uh, the correct conclusion. Absolutely. How was your athlete's recovery? Did the recovery go down, or did it go up, or did it change at all? Yeah. So, so this guy Jacob, I mean, that we're talking about. I mean, this guy. It's we ask him every day. You know, how are you feeling? He's Oh, feel great. You know, so we actually with Jacob, what we started doing is turning up his his specialized. Okay, so like you said, you can't do the cookie cutter three by ten. This guy recovers like crazy, doesn't get sore. Okay, we might take take his specialized up from from whatever. One guy may do three or four sets. You know, we'll take Jake to what six or eight. Yeah, six Literally, to eight. I mean, he'll go he'll go all day. Blowing up those weak areas that we find. And what's interesting to to kind of go into the recovery across our population, we've almost had a scary a scary increase in recovery since we've started more symmetric work. Like kids come in right feeling better. I don't know what, maybe it, maybe that's just antidotal, but. but and the conjugate system is for recovery. Absolutely. When you rotate exercises, it works for recovery. <clears throat> you know, if you go in, you, you know, John, when you bodybuild, your legs would be real sore. You go back in the next day, you do a, some light leg press, all of a sudden the soreness is out of your legs. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, with the, with the isometrics, I mean, you get no joint shearing, you get no tissue glide. So right there, you're not wasting biomechanical, you know, you know, like any sort of biological resources to recover. Right. Does that make sense? And then exactly. when you start to look at, well, where do the structural adaptations, where does the tissue start to get laid down at? Well, it gets laid down at that specific angle, which is the angle that you technically need. Where does the functional adaptation occur? Right there. So now, and then on top of it, I mean, from I see it from a manual therapy aspect, right? But as soon as that individual has an isometric contraction and they function in that specific range and they get good efferent uh uh, information, the central nervous system loves variability. It loves variability. So it's going to decrease tone. It's going to allow you into more ranges of motion. So now you can load more tissues. Right. So I'm doing it from a much more specific standpoint. Well, technically not. I'm just narrowing it down to a joint. You guys are taking exercises and dividing the exercises up into ranges like I would take a joint into ranges. The greatest right. method of flexibility is resistance. <clears throat> you know, yeah. you take a five-inch camera bar, 
You can't touch your chest, put more weight, goes lower, more weight, goes and breathes in, touches your chest. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, it's the same thing. So, if anything, the soreness that I like, like when I work with patients or clients and stuff like that, the soreness is going to be deeper in the joint. Does that make sense? So, it's like a very specific soreness. And technically, you know, somebody that doesn't have a shoulder or a hip, I want them to be sore so that they can feel that actual soreness so that they know that motion's occurring there. You don't feel anything if motion doesn't occur there. So, I'll tell them, hey, you want that hip joint to be somewhat sore and you want to feel it actually moving because a lot of people have had an immobile joint. And so, since they get, I mean, when you really think about how dangerous it is, you have no bone motion, so you don't have a joint, but then you're doing exercises that demand that you have a joint right so it can become real dangerous but what we see with high-level athletes is they just figure out how to compensate without it yeah. they don't even right. know they're compensating right. they don't know that they're compensating yeah. coaches don't know it unless you sit them down so this is the biggest thing that we i continuously see and we see all the time is these athletes that are really good they're really good because they can compensate so if you actually give them the components that they need now they become really good if you stay on that path, you end up like me. Yeah. <laughs> if you just adapt and adapt and adapt, pretty soon something goes. Right. You need you need a, a good restoration methods like John ARTs and so forth. Yes, well, that's just one of your pet peeves or our pet peeves. Well, coaches, they run them into the dirt. They no, no, athletes. they never heard the word recovery. Yeah. Well, see, that's because they can't see it. Literally, uh, you want to make a lot of money, you get a little battery packet for an athlete. That'll show them on full charge all the way down to red. Yeah. That's the only way a lot of coaches will know, okay, my athlete's getting run down. Other than that, they don't care. Go run, go do this. More, they punish you? More is better. Yeah. More is not better. Yeah. Remember what I said? It, I said there's samurais and there's tough, tough guys. guys. A lot of these coaches are nothing but tough guys, but they're not doing it. If the damn program's that great, get their ass out there and do it with the players. Exactly. Well, You're not going to see that, are you? I watched a team about a year ago. During the game before, a major game, they ran their kids in the ground so much they got they got shut out in the game big time. Yeah. Okay. And uh, Lord only hope they don't do it again this year. That's all yeah. I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not going to say what yeah. school. I think the people have this weird linear, like they like linear periodization because to them it makes sense. It's very easy to understand, I guess. Yeah. Right? Does that make sense? So well, they, yeah. They think that every they think that the more is better. They don't. So everything becomes linear when guess what? You're dealing with a nonlinear system, which is the human body. So all your linear thought processes never translate over. It's the same thing. Sif talks or uh, talks about it. The only thing that linear progressive overloads leads to is increased tissue breakdown. Well, at some point, you're going to get injured. Absolutely. And you got to start over. Breakdown, more breakdown, more breakdown. At some point, you have to let delayed transformation occur. You have to deload at some point to let these adaptations occur so that you don't hurt yourself. That's why I say right before contest, you're overtrained nine times out of ten. Or you're undertrained nine times out of ten. Right. And you have no work capacity on you. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. It's like relying on one big punch to win the fight. And that's seldom. You know, a puncher's chance is a slim chance. Exactly. Slim to none. When again, he's got a puncher's chance, chances are you're going to get his ass kicked. Do you guys get a lot of, um, not pressure, but hesitation from athletes and parents on deadlift, specifically the, the sumo? And um, from that, how much carryover do you think the sumo deadlift has for sports? The sumo deadlift, in my opinion, is the greatest exercise that's ever been invented for an athlete. Um, so we're actually going to be doing some education on this and why it transfers so well to baseball specifically. But um, why well, I started testing this early this summer, and I, and I and I had I had thought processes that because of the laterally driven you know force production that happens in the sumo deadlift, 
one, it transfers to sport because everything's laterally driven, not just linearly driven. Mm -hmm. Baseball is a lateral sport, not a linear sport. <clears throat> when you push yourself down a mound, you step down the mound to the side and then rotate. So, you know, it's really a transverse type movement, mm -hmm. which Josh has the guys doing, following those up with transverse broad jumps to carry over. Um, but, you know, we get a lot of, oh, well, the, you know, deadlifts are bad for the back. Well, guess what, as a strength coach, Number one, if I have my if I have my athlete deadlifting, taking max efforts, and I can't assess that he's got a weak back, and I don't immediately go and start to increase the, the strength and loading capacity of his spine, I'm a, I, mean, I shouldn't be a strength coach. That's the first thing. Number two, the last time I checked, I'm not sure how many joints is there in the spine. Seven, what was it, seventeen? I mean, there's how many vertebrae? Yeah, it's made to bend. And the last time I checked, there's a shitload of, of soft tissue and muscle that run up and down the spine. Pretty sure it's made to load. And if you look at the strongest powerlifters in the world, uh, they lift with round backs. And, you know, not that we promote just, hey, lift with a round back, but we, we look at the, the final breakdown of the spine when we, when we assess that max effort, and I was gonna say this earlier, one of the reasons that we're able to assess a true breakdown and a true weakness in an athlete is because we take a actual single rep max. If you don't take a one rep max and you don't take an athlete to a point of actual mechanical breakdown and, and dysfunction, you'll never be able to assess where they, where they have dysfunction. If they can do three reps, if they're strong enough to do three reps, you don't ever figure out where it's breaking down because they can complete the, th the three reps. If they, if they fail on the first rep, okay, what failed? Did he, did he hunch over? Does he have a weak back? Does he have a weak groin? Do his knees crash in? And that's, that's the only reason why we've able to you know, narrow this down, use rotating these specialized variations for single maxes, where, why, why this guy Barnes is a freaking, literally like a genetic freak. He's got a four inch range where you, you lose 25% power. It's because we took single rep max efforts and we found that we found that failing range. So, I mean. You know, a lot of young children say, well, you can't max out young kids. But all you coaches listening to this podcast, hopefully, the first time the girl next door chugged you to a race, did your race at 75% of your best or did you kick her ass? You ran as fast as you could. And the boy next door challenged you a weightlifting contest. You lifted as much as you could. You didn't do 85%. Come on, guys, get over it. You're not going to hurt a kid because that's what the goji tendon and so forth is there for. It will shut the body down. Right? Yeah. It I shuts mean, it down. I mean, you got I, go on. No, you go. I wanted to do a study with Dr. Mel Siff, and he agreed that I was correct, that I felt that if I use enormous amount of bands, uh, I could override the goji tendon because of the overspeed eccentrics. You know, if you jump off a high box, you've got no chance but to land with great force. Mm -hmm. But if I use bands for overspeed eccentrics, because... My people have never, even, all you guys missed, but you came up missing, right? I've never, years ago, with just weights, people get stuck in the bottom. No one of my gyms ever got stuck in the bottom. They're at least coming up when they miss. They're going to, they're going to have an opposite and equal effect uh, through the, for the overspeed eccentrics of those bands. Because they work just like connected tissue. They stretch and contract on the lines of the human body. Yeah, and plus, too, I mean, you got to figure the bands are actually active. They're pulling you down. You know That's what, I mean? what I'm saying. So, overspeed eccentrics. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, your central nervous system is going to be more alert. If you have a more alert central nervous system, you're going to get higher function. Your your tendons and muscles works in series, and 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 so we'll build up a lot of tendon strain because tendons aren't as strong as muscle if you don't train them. But we train ours. So that's where, you know, that's where you have deformation. So we're always trying to increase deformation. Eventually we'll get to box squats. I don't like to talk about box squatting. Well, it's important, but keep up with the, with the ball team. <laughs> Lou, box squats. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of people, you know, the first, in case, for those who don't know and have forgot, the first 800-pound squatter is Pat Casey. What's up, Barbell? Culver City, not Westside here. 
box squatter. All right, the greatest squatters in the world, the biggest squats in the world is 1267, 1265, Donnie Thomas and Retton from Finland, box squatter. All right, Retton trains at a gym just like Westside Barbell in Finland. Um, the three greatest squatters pound for pound that we have are box squatters. Um, a kid from Dirty South Barbell uh, broke, tore off both knees, came back, squat 1150 pounds at one at uh, 242. Box squatter. They're all the greatest squatters more box squatters. You know, when you squat, if you do have deformation, if you squat, how big are your feet, say size 12, you go down, you have deformation to the size foot that you have. But if you sit on a box, you have deformation now by the size glute that you're setting on that large box. You're going to end up, the, the bar, you're going to go down and, you, and the muscles are going to lengthen and eventually contract. So that's why, and also teaches you to push from upwards downwards. It teaches you to, if you would say squat backwards, but actually squat properly, because you must drive down to squat. And, uh, and the other way, it's not like that. And that's why box squats are, you know, one of the best methods. And uh, box squats are much more complicated than a full squat. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So if you master a box squat, you know, full squats are easy. And they're much easier on your knees. You don't get a sore from a box squat. You recover faster from box squats. And, um, and so forth. It makes you much more explosive. What's the biggest thing that you've seen people do wrong in a box squat? Well, box squat or, well, touch and go. They touch and go to box. They have to set. It's all in the abs. If you keep your abdominals, especially your obliques tight, uh, the, your internal abdominal pressure is high. You won't have any pressure. You know, everybody says, you're in a box, you hurt your back. How come you got a bad back? What do you do? You sit down. <laughs> you don't stand up. You sit down, guys. So it's not going to bother because it's all, it all starts in the abdominal cavity. So you sit on the box. And uh, but people will do a lot of things, Tommy. They will push with their feet first. If you push your feet in a regular squat, you roll over into a good morning. We were talking about if I got you in a Muay Thai clinch and you're bent and you straighten out your legs, I still got you locked in that Muay Thai clinch. You have to pick your head out of there, you know, to try to break it if you want to try to break it like that. And so when you squat, people forget what are you trying to move when you squat? You're trying to move the floor off money, or you're trying to move the barbell. You're moving the barbell. You must apply force into the barbell. I had a discussion your day. My lifters, he was telling some of the guys, um, get it in your legs, get it in your legs. I said, you've got to get it in your back. You're taking a barrel on your back. So you have to, that's where the pressure is applied in your upper back. And uh, so, anyhow, that's a few things. It's one of the most common. And, and just, I mean, techniques, not driving your feet up like the sumo deadlift. But like you said, it builds lateral speed immediately. Um, you, you have greater force driving outward than you do downward. Yes. What about those who sit in the box and they can lift their feet up? They completely deload off the box. Well, actually, Tom, years ago, uh, George ha- George's um, friend was a ha- world champion in the hammer throw, yeah. and he actually did pick his feet up and slam them down. You know, it's kind of how we do a lot of box jumps onto a second box. We go mm-hmm. pick our feet up, slam down, jump. It's it, you can do that, but you shouldn't be moving your feet around. But I'm one of the pr- people that would move my feet. You know, you probably notice in the gym, guys move their feet when they box squat. Yeah. You know, I don't think a lot of people even realize it, but they do. Mm-hmm. The thing about it is you sit down and readjust and come up. And if you go, even if you go down wrong, which you shouldn't in the box squat, set, readjust, and come up correctly. Just because you go down wrong don't mean you got to come up wrong. So, um, A lot of people think, too, when you get on the box that you legitimately, you roll back and come up, but that's not the case. You're actually releasing your hips. You're releasing your hips. You had to release the hips. That way, you uh, that's where the stretch reflex, you're bringing up the eccentric, concentric chain. Uh, um, remember, you know, in um, in the old Westside Barbell book, Tom, 
there's a part in there. There's a big discussion about me and my box squats. Mm -hmm. And it got, you know, and how do you box squat? You, you know, Jim Winter and everybody's saying how you box squat. Like, there's, there's one way. Our, this is the way. But a guy said I was wrong. He said, uh, I said that I could stay down for eight seconds to get up at the same time. He said, this, the stretch reflex, you know, the plyometric action doesn't last that long. No, it doesn't. It's about a, a tenth and a half or two tenths of a second. But reversal strength lasts that long. And if you, uh, is, is this on film? Mm -hmm. If I took, if I was 300 pound guy and I took a basketball, put it on this table, and I push that ball down and I flatten, I have deformation, the ball's on the bottom is two, three inches flat, slide my hands out, what's the ball do? Jumps. Exactly what happens when you sit down. People say, well, who gives a damn, Louie? I'll tell you who does. You watch these football teams all the time. They're constantly changing the plays on the field. It will maintain the stretch reflex longer, the muscle, re reversible muscle action longer than a person doesn't do it for those plays on a football field. We got questions that have been asked here on Circamax. Uh, is the Circamax with, without the use of bands straightways the same as with bands? I mean, would the percentage be the same? Well, there's no percentage. You're trying to break an all-time box squat record. That's all it counts. Like, if you could box squat 600 pounds, our goal would probably be 610, that kind of a weight. You know, we, uh, we're we normally doing something, um, well, what the hell, what was yours? You uh, you did 600, I told you, 600 and what, um, and 375 pounds of band tension. But you broke it by what? It's um, about 20 pounds or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Normally, I mean, if we break up, like, my 165 is world record horse squats 900. He, we try to break up by 5 or 10 pounds, and that's it. Just break it. Then you should be able to go to meet and break that. Um, in relation, are all lifters rediscovering the conjugate method? Is history repeating itself in terms of raw and gear programming? <laughs> Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, all athletes are raw. They got to think about this. But listen, guys, I lifted raw, uh, no shirt for 14 years, and no sh and no uh, suit for seven. And uh, I trained the very same way. I didn't even know what the, con the, the the conjugate system was. It was named in 1972. Bodybuilders done a conjugate system all your life. <laughs> you constantly go to different gyms with different equipment. It's constantly switching. Correct. You do high reps one day, low reps the next. You use different machines. You know, machines build motion. But not, but not you know, strength or uh, it builds muscle, but not motion. But um, basically, did I answer that question? Yeah. Um, <laughs> West Side. I, I want. Can uh -huh. I say something? We have two lifters. At the time you mm -hmm. saw this, Showtime and his buddy trains you know, on Sunday on the bench. Um, they came in. One wears zero gear. He's two hundred sixty-five pounds. The other guy wears a breeze and canvas suit. Two hundred sixty-five pounds. They took a box squat. They both made 535 pounds in a blue and a green, which is 375. They went to meet. They both squatted 855 pounds. Math is math, and velocity is velocity. It doesn't matter if you wear gear or not. In relation to Olympic lifting, would Westside put clean and jerk and snatch variations on both max effort days um, of the week are only max effort and dynamic effort are only one? Max effort, you have to do two max efforts a week for your Olympic weightlifter. If you look what the Chinese do, they use two. One of them has to be, don't forget, you have to be able to jerk the weights after you clean them. So you're going to have to have a jerk record. Also, max effort means squatting. Here in America, Olympic weightlifters are not very good squatters. You have to have a big squat and you have to have a strong back. And so you can max out in the squat, the front squat. You can max out in anything, but a lot of pulls. You know, my weightlifting book, Tom, what's this show? 75 max effort workouts. 
If you read Dr. Medvedev, forget about Louis Simmons. Dr. Medvedev, a renowned weightlifting coach, had basically 75 or 100 variations for weightlifters, standing on boxes, uh, close grip, snatches, wide, you know, all kinds of variations. You want to do a lot of variations so you constantly break records and get in your mind you can actually break a record when you go to a contest. Um, isometrics, uh, would you put them on max effort dynamic or do you have a, a separate workout for them? We've done them both. Remember when Chris was here, he would do a lot of high pulls. He had one guy that did high pulls where he would hold the bar against the pen for mm-hmm. a count of two. He put 30 pounds on a guy's high pull and it put 30 pounds on his uh, snatch, 285 to 315. <laughs> Would you put power cleans in the place of uh, speed deadlifts? Yes, no absolutely. I mean, that, that's what my book talks about. Do a power cleans, power snatch. You do classical clean. You could do a clean and a jerk. That way you're going to have a lot of variations. And, and you're going to double the work. If you did a power clean and a jerk, you know, if you did power clean for a cycle, then power clean and a jerk, you just had a lot more work. You're going to do 18 jerks along in that program. Or you could do a power clean, do a power clean. Don't catch the damn bar and drop into a full squat. Catch the damn bar and stop, please. All right? Or catch the bar, stop at the top position, then do a full squat, then do a jerk. Now you've multiplied the weights, the training by three. There's all kinds of – that way you're changing the volume. you got to mix the volume, got to mix the exercise, got to mix the stimulus. Um, if an athlete's lower body's lifts are increasing, back squat, good mornings, front squat, rack pulls, um, but the deadlift off the floor is still not increasing, is there anything else they can do? If it's not increasing, yeah. chances are if you can't get the bar off the floor, it's a weak stomach and weak knee extension as far as I'm concerned. Hamstrings behind the knee. Uh, without having surgery on a torn labrum in the shoulder, what would you recommend to get it healthier? Platelets and um, um, stem cell. You and... Uh, what's that machine? Um, Arcwave? The the vibrator? Yeah. No, no. You know no. the one that's used on kidney stones. What's that thing called? Oh, the shockwave? Shockwave. That thing, we had good success with that. Is it so still Olympic weightlifters? This is just in general. Can you say something about Olympic weightlifters? Yeah. We, we just had a guy down there break his record, and this is what I determined about weightlifting. Uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, I love the sport. I, I love the sport like you can't believe, but we're not very good at it. But then I noticed one of the major reasons when people come here, and they send them here for two and three weeks. You've seen them. Uh, they can't squat, and they have no back muscle. They are taught in America to pull vertically. If you want to buy a book by Roman, shows 40, like 40 world champions. They are well over the bar. If you look at Lee James, Tom, I showed you a picture of Lee. I told you to put a picture in with that article. He looks like he's doing a uh, you know an archback bent over row. You have to stay over the bar. If you if you lift vertically, when you get to the second pole, you have no hip extension to get the bar to come up. If you're way over the bar, that's why you get this tremendous snap uh, to get the bar over. The, the, the technique in America is absolutely incorrect. I'm all about technique. And that's one of their problems. And consequently, because, see, I've been told it's, it's all legs. It's not all legs. Why you got a back? If, it, if it's all legs, why do you even, you got to have a strong back. And they come here, they have no back muscles and they can't squat. If you can't squat, you're not going to be able to. I put 35 pounds and took a kick from three to 335 in a clean. And he still can't stand up with the damn bar because he's got no squat. Do you see the same thing, guys? Absolutely. It's the same thing. Yeah. It's it's super simple. And then, and then, you know, they want all they want to do is Olympic squat, and they squat straight up and down, but yet they pull inclined. 
squat with an arch back forward. Tommy, we were watching a, a tape from Ireland the other day, guys. Remember mm -hmm. I said they're doing polling squats. Come up with an arch, right? Yeah. You, they're called polling squats. Um, any thoughts on roughly a percentage of from what deficit deadlift and block rack pulls should be in relation to a deadlift? Is there any... Or depending uh, on body Actually, structure. it doesn't matter because I watched Chuck Vogel pull. He's built a pull. He pulled 750 on a four-inch box. The best pull was 771. I pulled uh, 604 when I was 180. I pulled 670 to me and almost made seven. I pulled 650 on a four-inch box. I pulled 722 easy. So Chuck got 20 pounds, and he looked at the ratio. I got 70. I got 10%. Yeah, everybody's going to be different They're gonna be based different. on their yeah. same length. The key, uh, tell the, the, the viewer, the key is... Just break the freaking records. <laughs> One thing I'll add to that, that's actually what we see is that that should rotate. If you're doing the system correctly, it should rotate because we have we have kids that when we when we correctly assess the weakness and where the breakdown is and, and you know, assign specialized exercises based on where they're failing. What we find and I found it with me, I used to be terrible off the blocks. Now I just you know, I have a 655 pound, uh, you know, basically a 55 pound PR off of four inches of block or six inches of block. You know, yeah. so it, it, it rotates, you know, I'm actually better off the ground now where that used to be, that used to be a weak thing for me. Now I'm, you know, so I think it changes and I see it in our kids, it changes. It's not. But that's right. Your strengths will become your weaknesses absolutely. and your weakness become right. your strengths. And if you break your record on Max Everday, like you talk about, you know, you're going to be stronger, you know, off the floor. A couple of things. See, we never do regular. I got one guy does regular deadlifts off the floor. Not very good deadlifter. Everyone uses bands or, or uh, you know, different amounts of bands or uh, stand on boxes or weights on boxes. But a couple of things that will help a deadlift is an ultra-wide sumo stance, straight leg, arched back, and muscled off the ground. And another, one of my favorites years ago, and a lot of viewers are young and flexible, I use a five-inch camber bench bar. I build a box on a, on a star, like, and I stood on it. The top of the bar touched my feet. My hands were four inches lower than the ground and i pulled after after recovery from my second lower back fracture i pulled 570 and i pulled an easy 716 off by doing that my friend gino cardi who and i was weak in the bottom i had no flexibility breaking my back second time so built my flexibility gino was real strong on the bottom couldn't work out anything he had a 700 pull he ended up pulling 700 in the very same way and took his depth from 700 to 733 and 766 at 235 pounds. So it built his finish and it built my start. But that's a that's a that's a, a muscle builder right there. And you need good you talked about mobility and range of motion. Oh, absolutely. It's, that's what it builds. And hey, and when you stand on boxes, guys, it's not to do stiff like deadlifts. You're supposed to use your legs to transfer into your back. That's Olympic lifters stood on boxes and pulled. Not in this country, but you need to to prolong leg drive. Um how would you put in overhead presses into the system? Would you put it instead of bench day? Yeah, on bench day, that's the day that uh, you know Chris and these guys come in do their overhead presses and uh, a lot of push jerks and so forth. Any particular variations? Many. Uh, they felt one of the best things is put the bar on pins and jerk it off a pin. It, it gave them, it taught them better timing. With that pin about eye level? Uh, yeah, about up in here, you know, yep. where you stand up to press. Um, the percentage? Oh, Tommy, Go ahead. a lot of bands. Use bands to do this because at the top, it's going to teach you to jump. Like a kid, he jumped over the weights quick. You guys found that out. Yeah, we just saw And it teach you because weightlifting, you had to be fast. It's a strength sport, but in fast movements. And with the cleans, with the overspeed eccentrics, 
the bands are pulling you down too, so you almost right. have to yeah. beat the bands down. That's so. right. See, one of the aspects of weightlifting is catch the bar in a low right. position. It yeah. teaches you to get under the bar faster because yeah. the bar is being pulled yeah. down. Yeah. Well, um, I remember a coach said, I never heard of that. Well, I guess yeah. he's not a coach because <laughs> that's the idea about weightlifting. <laughs> David Rieger and Yuri Vardanian was the, you know, some of the best. Yuri did a 490 in the 181s, and he's one of the fastest guys underneath the bar. So that's a key factor. You know, you know, the, you know, you saw the kid today. Remember I said you got to pull yourself under the bar? You just right. can't pull it up and jump under it. Exactly. You got to pull and wedge yourself under the bar. After taking the bands off, like you said, he almost knocked. Yeah, I said, don't knock your teeth out. He pulled the. The um, the total percentage of assistance work, special exercise, and dynamic and max effort is it the same percentage? Yes. Yep. Yeah, I mean, so on max every day, they actually even do more uh, special exercise. You know, for your weightlifters out there, um, if you read practice science and strength training. Anyone beginning to be even remotely advanced has to do at least 50% spatial exercise, and it goes up. Um, Yan Taltz is the highest I've ever seen. He did 10% Olympic weightlifting, 90% spatial. Uh, he was a world champion in 198, and he came over here and beat uh, Bob Benarski, one of our heroes in the 242s. And But there wasn't a 220, weighed 228 pounds. He beat him right in Columbus, Ohio. I saw it. So... Anything else you want to add in before we wrap up? Uh, can I just say a word to all my weightlifting friends? Yes. Um, I love the sport, and if you would it just, you have to box squat to build a squat. You have to raise your work capacity. You, if we could go in and do the maximals, if we could do twenty, you know, twenty-five squats and twenty pulls, you had to be able to do the same. There's no way because this was based on Olympic weightlifting, and track and field did it. Uh, like I said, it do, I always set it up optimal. If you did like in this, you know, um, you know, like for eighty percent range is fifteen lifts. Um, you know, seventy percent range it would be um, what did I say eighteen lifts. Mm -hmm. And so you need to be able to do that. But I haven't had Olympic weightlifter come here. They can do the minimal lifts. They can't get through the minimal lifts, let alone the system work. And another thing I found um, that when they come in, they cannot do a system. You know, forget the clean and jerk. Forget the snatch. Forget the dead and forget the squat. They cannot do any assistant work with my guys. Not right now, you see it. Not even remote. They can't do back raises, can't do good mornings. I watched a kid take a 195 pound kid take 205 in the, in the archback good morning and go straight to the ground. He couldn't even hold it up. I'm sitting there in total amazement. You know what I mean? I did archback good mornings with 805 pounds before when I trained, before bands. 805 freaking pounds. And so they've got to increase their back strength. They've got to get over the bar. Go buy a few books. You know, don't rely on a, you know, if you want to go learn to race cars, don't go get your grandmother to teach you how to drive. <laughs> go buy some of the books that, that we sell and everyone sells and find the truth about weightlifting and you'll be amazed. Okay. That's it. I'd like to thank everyone for the podcast and we'll see you guys again soon.